Hi, this is Joel Crane. I'm Investor Relations with Cobalt Blue. Uh, we are a uh, development company building a uh, cobalt mine and refinery out in Broken Hill in Western New South Wales. Uh, and I'm here to uh, provide an update of what we're up to. Joel, good to meet you, sir. Um, thanks for coming aboard and, and, and welcome to um, Cobalt Blue. When did you join? I joined at the beginning of February. Ah, oh, fantastic. So um, maybe give us a little bit of background where, where you're from and what, what you've been brought in to do. Uh, well, I'm American by uh, birth, but Australian by choice these days. I've been living in Australia about 20 years. Although for the past five years, I had been in Singapore where I was working for Rio Tinto uh, in the commercial division. Uh, I was a manager in the market analysis team, basically a uh, inside um, analysis of all the major commodity markets that Rio is either involved with or would like to be. Um, so that was that was a great experience to to really get that um, that, that deep insight there. Um, before that, I was a commodities analyst with two major uh, international investment banks. Where I worked with the global equities team and I forecast all the major metal prices. So. Um, about um, 15 years all up in the space. And what do you, and so what have you been brought in to do? I mean, because obviously I, I know that um, Joe and Andrew are over in the States at the moment. And we'll talk about that in a second. But um, <clears throat> you're, you're, to, you're being brought in to, you know, do what or help how? First of all and foremost, just taking up the role as um, investor relations. So Joe, the CEO, and Andrew, the executive manager, have been um, very diligently speaking to the market and doing all the interviews for everything that's required to get the message out. But um, given where we're at in terms of development with the project, um, that need to be a, basically a single full-time role. So that's what I'm doing out there, tapping my connections and, and knowledge in, in the space and um, just trying to get the word out. Good, 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 good stuff. Well, why don't we talk about uh, what Joe and Andrew are doing over in the States? Where, where are they and uh, who are they talking to? They uh, are just wrapping up a trip to Washington, D.C. They accompanied the Australian Minister of Trade, um, uh, Mr. Tien. And there uh, he was meeting with the U.S. Department of Commerce and the Commerce Secretary, uh, and probably would have seen a couple of headlines, um, but basically uh, the U.S. and Australia have entered into sort of a, a formal negotiations or deal where the U.S. would like to use some of its um, trade and export facilities, loan facilities to help uh, Australian critical minerals projects get up and running. So basically just making monies that are available for um, that, that the U.S. makes available for what they consider important projects overseas. To, um, uh, to to those particular projects, that, especially ones that they deem of great importance. So um, they were accompanied um, by two other uh, actual producers as opposed to developers, um, Iluca and, um, and Linus Rarer. So it's a pretty good company to be in. Not bad company at all. So th this is all part of the U.S. Um, trying to make friends because the critical minerals uh, uh, system internally is, is not quite there yet. So they're reaching out to allies um, and providing funding. I guess this is like export credit funding, so cheap money, as it were. Um, is that why Joe and Andrew are over there, or was it more broadly to say, let's try and establish some kind of relationship? Well, I think really all of the above. Uh, they were there. They were invited to attend because uh, Minister Tian has um, has identified our project as one um, that is is of critical importance to not only Australia but really to the world and to the battery making world because we're able to. We're hoping to uh, provide ethical cobalt uh, to battery makers, which is uh, in pretty short demand around the world. So this is a this is a product that we'll be um, sending um, to numerous places around the world, and obviously the U.S. Uh, is it would like to be a part of that market as well. Okay, and you've obviously just achieved uh, major project status in Australia. Uh, that's that's got to be helpful um, in, in terms of um, I say 
you know, being able to be in the same room as, uh, as, as the lionesses of this world is, is good news for projects as young as you guys. But um, tell me, you know, how are things um, progressing at the moment? Where, where, where are you? Because last time I spoke with Joe, I think it was, you're talking about, um, you know, getting product out into market for testing by partners to try and establish some sort of credibility, but have, have things advanced? Yeah, uh, greatly since, since you last spoke to Joe. So last year um, was all about... Um, building and 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 running a pilot plant so they're basically taking the core samples from the drilling programs of the past several years um and and putting that uh, crushing that and milling it making it concentrate and putting it all the way through our refinery uh to come up with a the, an end product of, of that can be sent directly to battery makers around the world so that's mhp uh, mix hydroxide precipitate which is uh, sort of the green paste stuff that's got both cobalt and a bit of nickel in it we're also able to make cobalt sulfate, uh, which is really the, the direct input into a battery. So we were able to take those two products and send it to about 30 uh, commercial partners around the world in Japan, Korea, India, and Europe. Um, that program is, is now over, basically uh, dismantling the pilot uh, plant and upscaling it into what we're calling the demonstration plant. So the difference between the, the pilot plant and demonstration plant is, is size, really. So what we're doing is moving the um, the uh, concentrate circuit out to site, which is just 23k down the road from from Broken Hill Township, where the pilot plant was. Uh, but we're we're establishing that on site, and right now uh, we, we issued a an ASX announcement actually last week, showing some pictures and some video of our first blast. But right now we're we're going directly into the resource, um, creating a box cut that's going to be about 80 meters in length, and then we'll intersect the ore body about 40 meters down be able to take the actual ore from the uh, from the asset itself, crush it, make the concentrate on site, then take it back to the upscaled refinery in Broken Hill, and again make the MHP and the uh, and the cobalt sulfate to again send to our uh, commercial partners around the world for qualification purposes in a much more, in a larger scale. What, what's the end game here? Because You've, you've got about 30 or so people, as I understand it, like um, trialing the product and you've got the MHP and the sulfate. Um, when you go into commercial production, are you going to have multiple lines um, or are you looking to find one partner with one offtake agreement producing one product? I, the efficiency there is, I, I guess, what you know important to you in terms of margin, um, but also as the sense of security of getting an offtake contract with which, which, whichever um, company, battery manufacturer, OEM, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, is, is going to be important to you. So how are you guys thinking about planning that? Well, it's a good question that we don't have a, a definitive answer to yet. Um, that'll, that'll all sort of come down to how we end up funding the project because we are looking for a, a major partner. And, and one of our strategies is not to sign an, an offtake agreement that doesn't have any value placed to it. We, we think that actually um, makes, it makes our project a bit more... Um, I guess perhaps difficult to to approach from a major partner. So we're hoping someone can come in as sort of a JV, um, or perhaps um, a one or, or sorry a um, a payment line for some of the offtake um, as or prepayment for the offtake, um, as opposed to just sort of a, a promissory um, um, agreement or or um, uh, that that a lot of our peers, I suppose, around the world have, have done. Um, because if you're approaching a, a, uh, a major partner, we're talking like a, a battery maker or a European car maker or something like that, and you say, look, we, we would like you to take a, a, you know, a, become a partner with the project. However, if we've already promised 
30% of our offtake for five years to someone else, that makes the project perhaps a little less attractive. So we're, we're playing around with a bunch of different um, strategies for that. But eventually, we, we hope to have a number of um, customers for end use. And we're going to have about 3,500 tons of our product. Um, and that's in a market of about 150. So it's a pretty chunky amount that will be available for the rest of the world. I mean, the ethical components of this is, has always been a, in a big part of the narrative. Um, you know, and I think, you know, if you, if you do XDRC, you're, you know, top 10 producer by, by size of, of operation here, potentially, uh, excluding what, well, excluding the potential in, in, in Queensland, which we talked about um, previously with, with, with Joe. It, do, it, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by the way that companies come at the the economics in the sense that you look at what's happening with cobalt um, and the, de- the demand numbers there um, and versus the certainty that you might get by an, a, like an offtake agreement with you know one, one one partner and you've got to work out you've got to place a bet haven't you and I guess that's the optionality you you're, you're in discussion about and you've just sort of talked through. Um, about maybe squeezing out some more margin versus the certainty of knowledge that the money will be there when you need it through whether it's a JV partner or off-take agreement. Well, look, the the ethical story really sells itself. And there are so few tons available that will be able to fall into that category. I really don't think we're going to have much problem um, moving the material once it comes to market. Uh, so, and, you know, there's very few players out there who are actually miners and refiners like we would be most cobalt comes as a concentrate sent to china where then it can be blended with uh, unethical material so you really don't without any sort of traceability you don't know what you're getting so we're, we're just skipping all those steps and just um, going directly to uh, either battery maker and automaker no, and of course, they, 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 sorry to bring it a little bit back to the macro here, but again, it, it informs your decision making, which there's still that debate going on about LFP batteries. And, and, and basically, there's a lot of new design batteries for different use cases coming through. And people, are, you know, some people would be concerned to say, well, actually, you know, cobalt's going to be designed out of batteries. I mean, what, what's the reality of what you're seeing, what you're hearing from all of these um, partners? Yeah, there, there's, there's a few aspects to this debate. Um, I think the one thing we have to just sort of take a step back and look from the macro side is the market for any battery is growing at very <laughs> fast and, and strong rates. Everyone's got different numbers. Um, and, you know, obviously that the demand will sort of go up and down, but we can all agree that the demand for batteries, <laughs> whether it be in EVs or, or, or stationary batteries, is very, very strong. And that's for all battery types. Over the past couple of years, it's very clear, and the data doesn't lie, there um, some of the nickel and cobalt bearing batteries have lost market share to LFP um, or lithium ferrous uh, phosphate. Um, so, you know, batteries have got a lot of um, iron in it. That's for a couple of reasons. And there's really two trade-offs when you're talking about LFP versus nickel cobalt bearing batteries. The two trade-offs are energy density and cost. And both of those right now sort of favor um, LFP. Um, that's because uh, uh, particularly with very um, volatile lithium, which is in both ends of battery, so you can't really escape that, but also nickel and cobalt prices. Um, not only prices are, are variable, but also uh, where, where you're sourcing those from, back to the ethical debate. But and that's worried a lot of battery um, users. So uh, they've had to make a trade-off of, of those um, aspects and energy density. Um, so what that simply means is um, how much what you're going to get out of the performance of the battery. So 
for smaller vehicles that don't require um, a large range. So maybe in, in, a, in a place with a high, uh, an urban place with a high um, population density and you don't drive your electric vehicle very far, you, don't, you, can, you only need to charge it. You can, you can only drive 40 to 50K before it needs a recharge and that's fine. Um, that works. And so there, particularly in China, there have been a number of um, automakers who are choosing those smaller, less energy efficient batteries for their vehicles. And, 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 it's, and it can be cheaper. Um, that's the second offset is the, of cost. Um, at the moment, um, LFPs are, are generally more cost efficient than, than um, or cheaper than nickel cobalt bearing batteries. Now, the problem with those two offsets is that there is a, there's a limit. So um, LFP batteries have reached their limit in terms of um, technological evolution, whereas nickel and cobalt bearing batteries, about 18 to 24 months, tend to find improvements, particularly in energy density and also cost. Um, so all major um, battery uh, researchers will tell you that the, uh, the technology will continue to improve and uh, you'll get better performance of nickel and cobalt bearing batteries as the years progress, whereas with the LFPs, it's simply just done. So there, is, there have been some market share losses. Um, uh, LFP is, is about 34% of the market, or somewhere around there, uh, whereas NCA is, is higher but ha has lost some of that. Um, we think, um, and this is just based on a number of um, research houses, both banks and other battery experts, that, that that'll plateau in about 23 or 24. Um, and then as technology increases, you'll, you'll start to see more um, nickel and cobalt bearing batteries coming back into play. But again, back to where I started, regardless of sort of those, those wanes between market share, battery market is exploding. Yeah, so it's not it's not a question of um, percentage; um, it's a question of volume. So you, you, it, it's basically maybe may a smaller percentage of a much larger pie um, is what you're saying for for cobalt. That's right. Can we just talk about the the, the market at the moment? So what what does the demand look like going forward? Because we again we've talked in the past, and I've talked to multiple companies on supply chains. OEMs getting nervous, battery manufacturers getting nervous. Um, trying to identify um, where their supply is coming from, being being briefed to go and go and get it, not at all costs, but get, get the best possible deal on the table. Now, cobalt market quite small, limited optionality for for OEMs. Um, what what's what's what are you hearing, and what's what's driving them? Uh, clearly, the ethical component, the trace and the, the trackability. Um, of, of it all is it important. What else is going to be important for them in terms of this green economy that they're they're feeding into? Well, yeah, I think the past couple of years, you talk to any company <laughs> that's involved in moving things around the world, and supply chain has has affected everyone. So I think that's really spooked um, people, or or it's really I guess sort of hit home that there needs to be a lot more security uh, of supply. So there's all sorts of strategies um, companies are taking, uh, whether it be you know, in, in the case of um, cobalt and some of the other markets, you know, trying to secure those type of offtakes um, and really bedding down that security supply or um, stepping back and just, you know, having to in-house a lot of the supply chain things. So there's a number of issues that are that are happening, but it's really, um, I think it's, you're starting to see, um, particularly the OEM starting to sort of scramble and change strategies. For instance, you know, we're, we're speaking to a lot of the major auto companies around the world and they, you know, within their procurement teams, they have resource analysts now. Um, so they're, they're getting very serious about understanding the, um, the market and wanting to have the best shot at um, getting 
um, security of of not only volume but um, a volume with an ethical component. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting about you know making that sort of appointment internally because um, when you, when you're out trying to chase supply and companies are saying we will produce X by by Y date and then they don't that causes you problems. So the, I, there's a lot of scrabbling around and trying trying to secure the best deals with the most likely companies. And that's, that's what we're hearing and, and mm-hmm. saying. There's a, there's a disconnect between what com- collectively what the companies are saying they will be able to produce and collectively what they probably will produce if history is anything to go by. So, that, so I think that'll be an interesting one and what that could do to um, price sort of cobalt and, and, and some of the other commodities um, as well. Just in terms of the, the, the again, macro factors going on here, because again, it's part of your thinking as, as, a, as a company. Geopolitics of what we're seeing, Russia, Ukraine, um, you guys obviously over in the US at the moment, they're trying to nail down their critical minerals uh, supply chain by offering you know, cheap capital to uh, companies in another country. Um, do you think any of that's going to slow down this inevitable um, drive towards EV? Do you think that some of the EV numbers might actually be too ambitious? I think that is possible, actually. We don't, we don't want to get carried away by um, pounding the table on how exciting this market is. It's certainly exciting, but it almost feels like we're getting a bit of demand destruction, primarily due to supply chain issues. And you name any auto company over the past two years, including the EVs. Um, and they've had to slow production because of a lack of a particular material or in China because of um, COVID zero policy, which still exists. In fact, you know, Shanghai is shutting down this weekend. Um, so um, that'll probably affect the, uh, the Tesla factory there. So <clears throat> I think that you're getting demand destruction, not because of consumer demand, but because of the ability to produce <laughs> the amount of um, product that is required. So yeah, that, that's certainly... Um, uh, something that'll be impacting markets and, and perhaps could uh, affect um, some of those demand numbers that, that were forecast that we see out there. And I, I have seen a couple of um, major forecasters pull back some of the ambitious EV numbers over, over the next year or two, simply because of, of, of those production issues. Yes. It's, well, yeah. Yeah. We, we have, again, we have conversations where definitely that, what you said, totally agree with that, but also a little bit about inflationary costs uh, across energy, across Food across, you know, m- multiple things that the everyday guy and gal has to contend with going forward, and the disposable income, and then this movement from internal combustion engines to, you know, ba- you know, electric cars. Maybe the decisions get delayed a little bit, but and and maybe even the designers, the OEMs, have to look at design cases. You know, can they create different? Uh, vehicles for different use cases, you know, whereby the engine, maybe the battery component is smaller just to be able to keep the cost down um, rather, you know, we, and, and, and that, you know, those sorts of, those sorts of things, that, you know, I'm trying to kind of feed that back to how does it affect you and your view of your ability to sell into market? So you, you're a bit, you're a big project now. You, you've got good margins there. So Scenarios, scenarios like that sort of economic one that we, we just both laid out is that doesn't affect your your timing or your decision making or your ability to get capital, does it? No, I mean, if anything, no. I mean, we're pushing ahead as, as fast as we can. We want to get to market as soon as possible you know, you know, for, for the reasons we've discussed and just in terms of that exciting growth in the market. But if anything, 
Um, getting the funding is probably getting easier because of the, the journey we've been on getting major project status. Um, uh, you know, the Australian government um, offering fantastic support via the Critical Minerals Initiative and, um, and, and the funds that are available um, either in grant form or in uh, loan facilities um, is exciting. And then, of course, what's happened this week with the U.S. announcing that they're willing to fund uh, U.S. or sorry, Australian projects. Um, if anything, the funding is just getting hopefully easier for us to ensure that we're able to keep our timelines in place um, and and finish the development of the project as okay. soon as possible. So you've got the money, potentially access to cheaper money. You've got some warrants coming through as well, I think. Um, the, um, when is it, August? I'm going to go with August, I think. But yeah, August. options expire in August. Well, well in the money. Several been, <laughs> a lot's been uh, exercised over the past couple of months. I bet, I bet. Um, okay, so so with all that on the table, you talked about moving the pilot plant or deconstructing de 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 the pilot plant, building a demonstration plant, which will then be you'll then need to create a kind of com commercial plant along that line. What's, what's that timeline look like? So the uh, demonstration plan, as I said, being constructed now, we anticipate that to be complete um, and up and running by May. Uh, and we'll run that um, for, a, you know, sort of a campaign of around six to seven weeks, just trying a couple different scheduling and try some 24-7, just really, um, you know, use that, uh, take the, the chance and the ability to, um, to you know, practice and, and, and work on the demonstration aspects of it um, and then um, produce the product and, and then send it around the world for qualification. Following the wrap-up of that um, exercise, uh, the rest of the year, we'll finish up our uh, feasibility statement, which we're working on at the moment. We have three uh, engineers uh, and outside consultants engaged, and we'll be able to take the data that we get from the demonstration plant and, and put that into the final feasibility statement, which we anticipate uh, to be done by the end of the year. Alongside, we're also working um, diligently to just to finish up all the environmental permitting, any, any all the other um, aspects of, uh, of, of permits and um, and things that go along with finalizing such a project. And then um, about this time to mid next year, which we're in position to make the final investment decision, uh, which will then enable us, assuming the fundings, uh, adequate fundings in place, uh, construction should start um, by the end of next year into, or, or into 24. Which is a very exciting indeed, very, very exciting indeed. So can I, what, what about some of these other things that you're doing on the side? I know there's like outliers at the moment, but there was chat about conversations in Queensland about um, processing tailings, et cetera. Is that, is that parked up for now or <laughs> will we be hearing more about that this year? Yeah, that, that's happening alongside. Um, it's, it's like you said, it is sort of happening more in the background, uh, but we do have a, an arrangement with the University of Queensland uh, where they'll be sending us some material from uh, tailings dams um, that we will try um, running through our processing plant, probably after the demonstration plant uh, has, or the material from the, from the, from the, from the ore body um, is finished, uh, then we'll be able to treat some of that material, really just testing to see um, if we're able to make the same sort of product out of, um, you know, a, a, a resource that's just widely available, not only in Queensland, but really all over Australia and the world of, um, of tailings that happen to be quite rich in cobalt. So we'll be testing that alongside, and um, this is called our Waste Streams pro uh, Project, uh, and we'll be doing, um, we'll be carrying that on um, from the second half of the year. Okay, and I just want to finish off with this bit because because of the nature of the the market you're feeding into this EV revolution, this green revolution, um, you're I don't think you'll be short of suitors from from Asia, Europe, or, or the US. But are 
are they more concerned with getting access to supply than holding you to higher standards in terms of you know, net zero carbon, ESG, et cetera. I, I, I want to understand how real ESG is in relation to getting a hold of a scarce commodity. Look, I think maybe a few years ago, net security supply would have been most important, but the world's really changed and, and swung in that ESG um, direction. And we, of course, take it very seriously as well. <clears throat> Just any new mining project you know, is, is being... Um, upheld with even greater standards than ever before, uh, and, and we will certainly be um, uh, being ensuring that we are, you know, the best of uh, the best of any sort of uh, environmental uh, standard at, at the mine site itself. But of course, S and G remain very important aspects, and we work very hard um, engaging the community um, as well as um, um, just ensuring that we are. Uh, good stewards uh, within that community, uh, but in the mining community itself. So um, look, not only are the end, end users of our product concerned, but of course the investors <laughs> within those end users and investors with us. So you know, ESG is more important than ever and it's only going to continue to rise in that importance and, and we understand that and taking it very seriously. Joel, lovely to meet you. Um, and what people don't realize is you, you're just recovering from a bout of uh, COVID. So um, <laughs> thank goodness your voice held, held together for that. Um, good man for battling through and also sharing you know, an update of what's going on there. Uh, it's been a great 18 months for you guys, and I suspect it'll be a, a great next 18 months as well. So uh, stay in touch and let us know how you get on, okay? Really appreciate the time um, and happy to do so. Thank you very much.